Today's topic came up spontaneously last week when I was at the California Association of Museums conference, and this happened. Let's start at the top. Uh, my name is Celeste Wald, and I am the executive director of the California Association of Museums, the organization that is putting the conference on. The head honcho herself. <laughs> All right, you must have in your career heard many myths, myths about our sector that are just completely wrong. Misconceptions. Yeah. Um, the one of my favorites is that nonprofits can't lobby or advocate. And that's really integral to the work that we do because, you know, the California Association of Museums does a lot of advocacy and law and some lobbying, um, you know, in Sacramento where we really are the voice of the museum field when it comes to state affairs, legislative affairs. And so that really frustrates me when we ask members, member institutions to get involved and the response is, oh, well, we, we can't do advocacy. We're a nonprofit. I think it's a, it's a misconception of what's allowable. Welcome to 501c3BS, deprogramming for organizational growth. I'm your host, Zoot Velasco. We just need one big fundraiser. Our clients are our donors. Bigger is better. Who cares what the mission statement is? I work in nonprofits. Bullshit! According to the IRS... Quote, no organization may qualify for Section 501c3 status if a substantial part of its activities is attempting to influence legislation, commonly known as lobbying. A 501c3 organization may engage in some lobbying, but too much lobbying activity risks the loss of tax-exempt status. According to the American Bar Association Business Law Today, Volume 18, Number 4, March-April 2009, and I quote, there is a widespread perception that nonprofits cannot lobby, or if they do lobby, they are exploiting some kind of legal loophole. The fact is that nonprofits, even 501c3 organizations, which are the most restricted type of nonprofits, may legally lobby. Getting involved in the legislative process and having a say in policy discussions is not just an appropriate role for nonprofits, it is vital. If nonprofits are not speaking on behalf of their often vulnerable communities, chances are nobody else's either. So which is it? Are we not allowed to lobby and advocate for ourselves? Or can we advocate as much as we'd like? Here to answer these questions, I have a very special guest from the top advocacy group in the country for the social sector. Hi, I'm David Thompson, Vice President of Public Policy for the National Council of Nonprofits. We are a leadership organization with 25,000 nonprofit members across the country. Mostly we work through state associations of nonprofits like Cal Nonprofits, where Zoot, uh, near, near where Zoot lives. Uh, we engage in capacity building, knowledge sharing, helping nonprofits be more efficient and effective, and helping nonprofits uh, in the advocacy environment and the policy uh, landscape because bad ideas pop up all over the country and it's good for nonprofits to be unified and working together to address policy challenges and to promote good ideas when they occasionally pop up too. Great. Thank you for that. So, so what is the difference between – well, first of all, what is lobbying and, and what is the difference between lobbying and advocacy? Okay. The think of the Golden Gate Bridge as lobbying and all of California is advocacy. Lobbying is something very narrow, very distinct. You can look at it and you can see it, but it's not the whole state of California. Advocacy is just about everything you do. Lobbying is limited to, you have to have three conditions 
for something to be called lobbying under the tax law. Number one, you have to be talking to a legislator or her or his staff. So you have to talk to a decision maker. Number two, you have to be talking about actual legislation, talking about climate change, talking about a, an abstract concept. Better education, for instance, is not legislation. It has to be existing legislation or something you're asking the legislator to introduce. And third, you have to be asking for a vote. Just talking about education without asking for a vote on specific legislation is not lobbying. So it's talking to a decision, a legislative decision maker, and talking about specific legislation and asking for a vote. Those very narrow things combined have to combine to make lobbying. Advocacy, and dude, if you'll give me a minute, uh, this is something that gets me really excited to talk about. Advocacy, you can look it up in the dictionary, you can uh, maybe find an occasional legal statute, or you can go to a library full of nonprofit wisdom. But to me, it all, what is advocacy boils down to one question everybody in the nonprofit world, I hope, is asking for her himself when they wake up in the morning. Who can I talk to today to advance my mission? That means telling a uh, fellow member of the orchestra that you were, that the person's out of tune so that you're sounding better. It may be encouraging a grumpy thrift store manager to lighten up and invite people in. It could be talking to a funder. This is nonprofit advocacy, talking to a funder about your impact in the community and why more money could help or uh, and to uh, encourage others to collaborate. You could be talking to a civic group, inviting the Elks and the Rotary Club to come in and participate in the work you're doing. You can't clean up the park with just your staff, but you can do it with lots of other helpers in the community, volunteers. It could be asking a politician for legislation. It could be talking to a reporter or a news anchor or the publisher of the newspaper to uh, explain what it is you do, what your impact is, and why it makes a difference. So all those it could be storytelling, it could be relating data, but all those examples focus on what anybody is already doing. Everyone's already engaging in nonprofit advocacy. And I'd love to tell the story of the Fairbanks Food Bank if you'll just ask me. Okay, tell me. Uh, you know what, David? I would love to hear the story of the Fairbanks F- Food Bank. You know, so that's my... <laughs> Favorite nonprofit advocacy story. Let me share it with you. <laughs> Great. <laughs> uh, the Fairbanks Food Bank is an independent food bank in Fairbanks, Alaska. They have they do good work in the community. Their mission is to feed hungry people in a very cold tundra. They were told by a national restaurant or national grocery chain that the chain is no longer going to be donating good canned goods uh, to the food bank. They claimed cited liability issues and other concerns, and they said, we're not going to donate to the food bank anymore. Well, Samantha Thurston, who was the CEO, said, that's bad. That's not a good idea. That hurts my mission. So she wrote a letter and got the report back that uh, liability concerns. Well, she didn't just take it as that because it was hurting her mission. So instead, when the children's groups would come through the food bank to put food in boxes and things, she'd talk to their parents and say, do you believe what the grocery chain has said, would you write in a letter and say, please support our community? Rotary elk groups come through and use use the food bank's conference table, or conference room. So she'd tell the story and ask them to um, 
to spread the word that, that we need that this grocery train to support the that support the food bank. Long story short, eventually the vice president for making the decision called up Samantha and said, "Of course we support the community of Fairbanks. How can we demonstrate it?" And she said, "Well, reverse the policy and start donating the quality uh, unsold food to the food bank again." He said, "Done." But he didn't just do it for the Fairbanks Food Bank. He did it for all independent food banks across the country. This was a major national chain. So tens, tens of thousands or tens of thousands of tons of food started flowing back into food banks and easing the, the hunger needs all over the country. This is one person saying, this policy adversely affects my mission. What can I do about it? So she got her community involved. Now, it's my favorite Nonprofit advocacy story, because you'll notice that not a single politician was harmed in the telling of that story. <laughs> That's a case of advocacy is finding something that is getting in the way of being successful and overcoming it. <laughs> That's good. Uh, well, I guess we could start PETP, People for the Ethical Treatment of Politicians, but I don't think you'd get a lot of people joining that group. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, just just to be clear, and, and just to clarify things for our listeners, because we're here all about debunking uh, mythology. So, uh, if I were uh, an organization in um, Orange County, California, and I worked with the homeless, and my city were to propose uh, a, a new homeless shelter that was very controversial in the community, and I were to get the people that are part of my organization uh, involved in in the um, lobbying effort for this homeless shelter, and I were to call my friend who is on the city council and try to get him whipped up in favor of the homeless shelter, that would be lobbying. But if I were to – is that correct? That would be lobbying. There's an ordinance that that creates it, so yes. Okay. Lobbying. But if I were to just call the press and say that we were in favor of this homeless shelter and and stated some stats of, of what the homeless population is in our area and what this homeless shelter may or may not do – that would be advocacy because I'm not lobbying for a particular bill with a particular councilman um, at a particular time when that bill is coming up. Is that correct? As you describe, that's absolutely correct. If you throw in the phrase and call your council members to tell them this is a good idea, you've you've done what's called grassroots lobbying. Still, it's still lobbying. Um, and it's still very effective. And it's and it's still legal, right? Yes, it's still legal. So um, this is where organizations get kind of confused, I think, because the way the statute is written, and we laughed about it earlier, but it basically the IRS is saying if your sole function is to lobby, you cannot be a 501c3. And if your 501c3 is spending all of its time lobbying rather than on the mission of the organization, then we you could lose your tax status. But you may engage in some lobbying is what it says. So that's kind of a kind of weird language. Uh, and that probably leads to this kind of mythology. How about a paragraph of history? to okay. make, it, make it a little bit clearer. Uh, Congress doesn't want 
to uh, provide taxpayer subsidy, taxpayer support for organizations that are lobbying Congress all the time. Uh, if an organization is created to lobby Congress to get itself a lot more funding or to lobby Congress to do a whole bunch of things, that's charitable donations are going to the organization, so it ends up being taxpayers are seen as subsidizing the lobbying activity. A little bit is okay. Too much is too much, and then the, the, the problem and the, the reason the myths keep occurring is that where is that gray area? Congress created a separate type of non-tax-exempt organization called the 501c4. It's the next section in the tax code. Those are called social welfare organizations. They can spend all of their time lobbying, no restrictions whatsoever. The difference is the donations are not tax-deductible, so the taxpayers aren't subsidizing the lobbying activity. So if anyone wants to spend all day lobbying every day, then the option is to create a 501c4 organization. So you can do it. You can do it and be tax-exempt. It's just the issue of charitable donation that uh, causes the difference. And just to be clear, a 501c4 organization would be like a chamber of commerce or a um, um, or a union. Is that correct? Uh, more like a uh, Sierra Club. It's the tax code, so of course it's complicated. Unions are 501c5. Okay, Chambers okay. of commerce are 501c6. But Sierra Club or I believe NAACP and organization, some 501c3 organizations have – parallel organizations that are dedicated more to uh, lobbying, such as American Cancer Society has a C4 that does a lot more advocate, uh, lobbying work. But I think C4, 5, and 6, they're all, um, they are all able to lobby and they're not um, tax exempt or they're not um, taxpayer funded. Correct. Good. Okay. So glad we got that cleared up because it is very confusing and I've been working in this for 30 years and I'm still confused by it. So, <laughs> um, okay. So what can, organ so organize organizations can legally do any kind of advocacy they want. And when it comes to lobbying, I'm, I'm assuming they could lobby if it's directly related to the mission of their organization. For example, if you're an environmental organization, you probably don't want to be out talking about women's right to choose, but you could certainly be doing advocacy about uh, environmental issues, correct? Uh, it is correct, but you're not limited. You can engage in some lobbying on issues beyond your scope. Now, I remember there was some some controversy a couple of years ago because there was, I don't remember if it was uh, right-wing evangelical organizations that were uh, encouraging people to vote for their candidates or whether it was uh, left-wing, uh, you know, kind of democratic organizations that were doing it. But I, I remember there was some IRS issues that came up around uh, and also with uh, faith-based organizations telling people to vote for cer certain candidates from the pulpit. So, you know, what can you clarify a little bit about what, what you can and can't do in terms of advocacy? I'm ecstatic that you've raised that issue. Uh, the question is, if wing nuts, right wing or left wing, are trying to endorse candidates, can they as 501c3s? The answer is absolutely not. And this is the subject area called the Johnson Amendment. We call it nonprofit nonpartisanship. Since 1954, 
the tax code has said that has protected charitable nonprofits, houses of worship, and foundations from demands from politicians and their donors to drag us into the, the swamp, into the morass of partisan politics. The Johnson Amendment, it was introduced or offered by then-Senator Lyndon Johnson, approved by the Republican House and Senate, and approved by and signed by President Eisenhower. So it was a nonpartisan, non-controversial issue back then. It says 501c3 organizations cannot endorse or oppose candidates for public office and can't siphon off charitable assets to fund political campaigns. It's an absolute prohibition. There's no gray area. You can't endorse candidates. You can do advocacy. You can do lobbying. Those are different sections of the tax code or different clause of 501c3. There's been a great push since last year to do exactly what you said uh, groups have been trying to do over the last couple of years. President Trump, at the National Prayer Breakfast last year, said that his goal is to totally destroy the Johnson Amendment. Not for lack of trying, but they failed to try to put it in the tax bill, tax law that was enacted in December. They tried to put it in some appropriations bills, and it's still a live issue. But the vast majority of charitable nonprofits and foundations are saying, don't even think about changing the Johnson Amendment. It protects us from partisan politics, it protects us and allows us to do our work in the community. We don't check party affiliation before someone comes in to help feed hungry people or clean up the park or whatever. We we are very much wanting to keep it that way. And for this discussion, there are two separate clauses of Section 501c3. One of them deals with lobbying, and then after a semicolon, there's one that's the Johnson Amendment. The Johnson Amendment was the last one enacted, and it is sacrosanct to the vast majority of us. Well, good. I'm glad you cleared cleared that up. I I, I think we're in a state where America's become hyper-partisan. Everybody's living in their bubbles and only listening to their news, and everything else is fake news. And it, it kind of drives wedges between us more and more. And our organizations, our community organizations, in, in my opinion, are, are one of the few things that still unite us and i hate to see more wedges get thrown between us and community organizations you know i think you could be a go ahead i agree with you wholeheartedly there's a reason that whenever you poll the public about institutions they like and dislike politicians are always down in the two three four percent care area and charitable nonprofits are always the highest ranked on the public we we earn it every day in communities and one of the major tools we have is nonpartisanship. If we become partisan, people are going to walk out of churches where the preacher's endorsing another candidate. Nonprofits themselves are going to fall apart if the board breaks up over endorsing my brother versus your business partner or kicking, uh, preventing the board from talking to uh, mayors who used to be on the board but are now running for re-election. And all, all kinds of challenges we don't face today would undermine our ability to be effective. We're effective because we're nonpartisan, as opposed to what the politicians seem seem to think. Yeah, I mean, I think in a nonprofit organization, you could be a a socialist atheist and work side by side with an evangelical on a food bank, or in a a, um, ecological society, or something that's helping the planet. I mean, there is no 
side to those kinds of issues. You know, you could you could be an evangelical and still think that um, stewarding the earth is an important part of your mission as an evangelical. So you don't you don't have to necessarily take sides with an organization. I hate to see them become more hyper partisan. The, the way you described that uh, made me laugh a little. I am a lobbyist. And I've been on Capitol Hill lobbying in support of retaining, keeping the Johnson Amendment. And in group meetings, I have literally been accompanied by Methodists and Baptists and atheists and secular humanists and a wide variety. We all agree, we may disagree on a variety of topics, but we all agree that nonpartisanship is the only way we're going to be effective. So it's something that is a bright line that crosses all uh, subsectors of all ideological beliefs. Well, it's kind of like the military. Everybody loves the military because the military, as they see it, is not the generals. It's the people that from their community that go out and fight for our country. And I think organizations are the same way. We're all in the trenches working for our communities together. I, I can't, can't improve on that. We are local community problem solvers. And we exist because we're not picky about who comes up with a brilliant idea. So, um, you know, I think I, I I know the answer to this question, but I want you to say it. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna maybe primer it a little bit, but uh, there are there are tons of 501c3. Well, there are tons of they're probably not 501c3. They're probably 501c4. But there are tons of groups out there that are advocacy groups for our sector that people don't generally know about and they don't get active in. And this was kind of the the take that. Um, Celeste uh, at the California Association of Museums was saying, and I'm going to play her interview as part of this podcast, but um, you know, she was saying, if, if you want to do advocacy and you don't have the time and the energy and the effort to do it, there are organizations like the California Association of Museums, if you're a museum, but there, there are similar organizations for just about every type of uh, 501c3 organization out there that people can get involved with and spend a little bit of time doing advocacy that makes a huge difference because it's going through a whole statewide agency. Would you like to expound on that? What is the best way for a very busy small organization that doesn't have a lot of staff or time to do advocacy for itself? Well, first off, I hope from my opening comments that everyone recognizes that they're already doing advocacy, so they're all, it's already core to their mission. They're making progress because they're advocating in their community. So it's not a question of stopping doing program work and doing advocacy. You're already advocating. But what can you do to plug into the public policy questions? First, easiest step is to... Track down your local state association of nonprofits. Uh, Zoo, you're in California. Cal nonprofits is awesome, but uh, and uh, there are nonprofits in just about every state. They do advocacy. They do knowledge building, all, all that stuff. It's their job to know what the hot public public policy issues are. Who are the people, the politicians who need to hear from nonprofits? Things like that. They're engaged in nonprofit public policy advocacy every day. And if you go to and you can track down the one in your state just by going to the homepage of my organization, Councilofnonprofits.org. You can also stay in touch by checking out our newsletters. We have a newsletter that comes out every two weeks entitled Nonprofit Advocacy Matters. That's not not a coincidence there. Um, by 
again, going to the homepage. And we also have a Knowledge Matters newsletter that comes out once a month. These are quick, easy, free. The newsletters are free, free ways of staying informed. Uh, but there are also, uh, if you are in a subsector, there most likely is an association, either national or statewide, uh, which will d- directly involve your issues. We work closely with the American Alliance of Museums, to use your example, and coordinate with them and uh, build on their messages and that sort of thing. State associations, though, are absolutely the best best place to start because it is their job to be able to speak the language of nonprofits to all all folks from all subsectors, whether you're a food bank, whether you uh, are concerned about uh, premature babies or the environment or many, many different issues that uh, relate to the good work that nonprofits do every, every day. And there are state associations for museums and stages, theaters, hospitals, homeless shelters, you, you name it. There's probably a state association for it, right? Uh, it's um, It's... Spotty. Wyoming is the lowest population state, and it has fewer regional associations. Uh, Some states have multiple, so sometimes it can be hard figuring out which is which, and the thing to do is just pick up the phone and ask, call them, and and talk to them. The state associations of nonprofits, I can stand behind (laughs) as uh, living up to a high standard and... um, and not every national organization has a full 50-state uh, network of state associations. We don't have a full 50-state network. Reason, many reasons. One, the concept of a nonprofit association is only about uh, 30 or 40 years old. And nonprofits are typically underfunded. There's not a lot of spare cash to uh, pay for memberships and go to conferences and live the high life. Uh, most of us are under underfunded and are uh, working on a shoestring. So that's one of the reasons that there aren't, unlike Chambers of Commerce and every uh, zip code, there's not a um, not necessarily a state a association of nonprofits everywhere you look. But we're working on it. Good, good. Well, I know here in California we have many, many, many associations. It's there's no shortage of them. Um, but the key is to just not just to join something, but actually get involved with it, right? Because the you only get out of things what you put into it. Absolutely. If you just write a check, you can maybe pat yourself on the back. But then now what? The point is to uh, get the newsletters, get the material, get involved. But it if your job is as a fundraiser, uh, you're doing advocacy every day already. But as a fundraiser, talk with others outside of your subsector. I regularly will speak to groups, and they'll start off talking about the why of advocacy. Maybe I'll tell the Fairbanks Food Bank story to them. And then they'll, the, the organizers will always want them to break up into the museum group or the um, faith-based group and so forth. They never want to because they always learn from each other. If you just keep talking to people in your subsector, you're just going to use rehash the same ideas. When you get beyond your subsector, when you include many different groups, 80-90% of their challenges are the same ones you're having. Not enough, not enough funding. Public doesn't understand. The policymakers don't appreciate. That sort of thing. The group dynamic is incredibly powerful. 
in terms of learning and accelerating ideas and generating new ones. So getting involved, attending the orientations, uh, just doing the webinar calls, it's a lot easier than it used to be. And when you contribute ideas, you're actually getting back that much more from the encouragement, from the, uh, the feedback from others who look at the issues, look at the ideas from different perspectives. And you'll be a stronger nonprofit uh, professional. And just to use your example, fundraisers, even fundraisers have an association. There's the Association of Fundraising Professionals. So, <laughs> so everybody's got one. <laughs> Well, um, uh, let me ask. For good, uh, I think for, good or, for good or bad. Uh, I'm my father of uh, AFP, so. Um. <laughs> well, uh, let me ask you, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't have you on the phone from Washington, D.C., who is the lobbying arm for our sector, and I didn't ask you about how the tax bill is going to affects, affect our organizations. I know there's a lot of concern in our sector about how the new tax bill may or may not affect us. Do you have any comments about that? <laughs> oh, Zoot, let me count the ways. <laughs> um, and actually, my colleague Tim Delaney and I have written extensively on this subject. We had an article in the uh, Chronicle of Philanthropy back in January that uh, addressed the many different waves that, that's plural, waves that it will, the tax law, it's not a tax law anymore, that waves the tax law will affect our, um, our, our organizations. Think of it as the tax law was a seismic shift. It was a big change, first time in 31 years, and we're now going to see tsunamis. Maybe not bad tsunamis, but tsunamis. First is the, well, first off, the tax law does a couple of things that people ought to know. Uh, it affects charitable giving in that it retained the charitable deduction, but it doubled the standard deduction so that now only 10, 12% of taxpayers will be itemizing their deductions. If you don't itemize, then you don't get a tax break for giving to charitable organizations. We so can I, can I stop yeah. you for a second? J sure. Just to simplify that a little bit for our listeners. So what I think you're saying is that because you have to be above the standard deduction, which is much larger now, the only people who are going to benefit from the tax donation for our organizations are much wealthier people. Is that true? That's true. Okay. So there's um, so it's going to be uh, it's going to be wealthier people, and fewer of them because instead of thirty percent of taxpayers getting uh, taking itemized deductions, it'll be down to ten to thirteen. Right. So, so the middle class. So, saying to a middle class person, "Well, you know, you can get this as a deduction." That's not going to be as attractive as it used to be. True. People give because they care about the mission. They give more because they care about the tax break. Take away the tax break, it is expected that people are going to give less. There's the argument that the tax cuts will leave more money in people's pockets, so they'll give it to charitable nonprofits. That same money is also being uh, told they'll use it to buy a bigger mortgage, a bigger house, or that, that extra money in the pocket's been uh, promised at 50 different locations, so charitable nonprofits aren't taking much comfort in the notion that the tax breaks will generate more giving. In fact, it's expected to reduce giving by 10 to $20 billion a year across the board. And depending on the types of donors you rely on, if 
your donors typically are local middle class donors who give hundred, two hundred, maybe a thousand dollars. They're the ones who are less likely to be donating. So uh, some nonprofits are going to be hurt or hit that much harder. And that's not to wring your hands and say, woe is me and give up. It just means that you should have been donating. We all should be donating or working on charitable giving throughout the year, promoting our mission, promoting our impact. So this takes away the end-of-year rush to give to make sure you get the full tax benefit and instead means we all have to be working, working it, fundraising year-round. The tax law also taxes tax-exempt organizations. It may sound like an oxymoron, but it's true. It taxes tax-exempt organizations in a number of ways, imposes a new tax on high salaries, imposes a new tax on some college endowments, and it changes the rules for business income, unrelated business income for nonprofits. For most people, it's not going to be a ma- most nonprofits. It's not going to be a major change, but it is given a signal to the states of yeehaw. You can start. We can start taxing nonprofits because those tsunamis that are hitting the states. The federal tax change is changing the impact on taxpayers in the states. And every state is different. Forty-one states tie their state income tax to the federal income tax code in one way or another. So whether it's the personal exemptions or the standard deduction or something like that, states are having to change their tax laws right now in order to uh, adjust so that in Michigan, taxpayers, state taxpayers would pay an extra $1.5 billion in 2018 because of the federal changes. It wasn't the goal of the federal tax change to generate more revenue for the state of Michigan, but that's a change that uh, the state is scrambling to adjust to. Well, let, let me let me clarify something sure. real quick. The um, the the tax the taxation on on CEOs of organizations isn't it like uh, it's like organ uh, CEOs that make over a million dollars or a million and a half dollars or something. It's what like is the threshold? What is the what? What is the threshold for taxation? Um, it's a, the law imposes an excise tax on salaries over a million dollars for the top five earners for the organization. Right. And the taxes on the amount above a million dollars, usually this will apply to eds and meds and some very established institutions. Yeah, the very large organizations. And certainly like college programs, college sports programs, uh, hospitals, symphonies, um, operas, things like that. Uh, some, a few symphonies, perhaps a few operas, perhaps most most are community based and don't like being lumped in with the, the big right, established right, right. entities. Yeah, the, the Why big this cities. matters is that the states, and this is where I'm going with this. Thanks for raising it. The states had been trying to come up with ways to tax nonprofit compensation for a while. Connecticut had a bill last year that would take away property tax exemption for. Some nonprofits that pay salaries over five hundred thousand dollars. Montana had the same rule, had the same legislation that failed for salaries over a quarter million dollars. So a million dollars sounds like it's out of everyone's league, but when the states get their hands on it, they start it starts getting lower and lower to the point where you're, they're treating nonprofits as um, 
as piggy banks almost. There's a law pending, legislation pending in Vermont that would say any nonprofit that receives uh, compensation from the state or gets grants or contracts from the states of a million dollars or more has to cap executive salaries at no more than what the governor earns because that's treating nonprofits as subsidiaries of government, something that we vehemently oppose because we are not subsidiaries. We are independent of government. But all of these tax law changes, looking at nonprofits as piggy banks, uh, the Fed started it with the tax law, and we're, we are seeing it and expecting to see it more across the country. Well, it's certainly going to change the way people give, too, because if you're thinking about giving money to the Red Cross – and you know that the CEO of the Red Cross and their higher officers are all going to get taxed, then you realize that some of your money is going to get taxed. You may not give money to the Red Cross. You might give to a smaller charity. Sure. There were the, the unintended, well, maybe those were intended consequences of changing the tax policy, changes the financial structure of the organizations, and we can't predict donor behavior. because it's a whole, It's a brave new world. Well, I think, you know, I have a theory about about funding in the new millennium that I would love to hear your thoughts on. So uh, my theory goes something like this. I'm I'm kind of the end of the baby boom generation and uh, the, the millennial generation is now past the baby boom generation in terms of population. So my theory goes something like this. My my um, the people who came before me and my generation, we used to give, you know, in these kind of large ways that that would include endowment building. And the millennial generation is giving much more in smaller ways over the internet that doesn't include endowment building. And I think this new tax law kind of encourages that, giving in smaller ways because you're not really looking for the tax donation. So you're going to give a lot of $20 donations instead of a couple thousand dollar donations. So it's going to certainly change the way people give more in line with the way millennials give now. And what that is going to do, I think, is in 10 to 20 years, any organization that doesn't have an endowment is going to cease to exist. I don't know if that's the logical outcome, but I agree wholeheartedly that the effect of the tax law is to discourage giving, long-term giving. It's to discourage, look, they um, doubled the exemption for the estate tax, so estate planning uh, took a hit in the tax law. But fewer people will be itemizing. So if you give to a charity, you're doing it for the mission. You're not doing it for the tax break. And you're going to be picking, you're going to be more picky about your missions. To some extent, that might be good. I don't think it was ever the intention of Congress to shift to millennial thinking. And in, in, in my mind, just from talking with hundreds of politicians and staff, the goal is to simplify the tax code. Doubling the standard deduction, simplify the tax code, end of discussion. The, con- the conversation that the adverse impact is that it will reduce giving to the work of charitable nonprofits and that more people are going to be turning to the government for more help was ignored. The data that proved that point was ignored. It was more, we want to get to a simplified tax code. So the purpose was simplicity. The effect, I think, is exactly in alignment with what you're saying. And how will that affect uh Giving. Interestingly, there are a couple of bills pending in the states right now to build endowments. Colorado is the most uh, uh, likely one. 
that uh, that says you get a tax credit, twenty five percent, so a dollar for every four you give, you get a dollar tax credit off your state taxes for giving to the endowment of a community foundation or a charitable nonprofit. So that's state legislation running counter to the notion. Mm, that's interesting. So then, so then some states are going to have big endowments, and other states are going to have nothing. Uh, big, big is an overstatement, I'd say, but it's, <laughs> it's a way of addressing the challenge. A, a great challenge for all charitable nonprofits is the perception that endowments are bad, overhead is bad, that we're all overpaid. In lobbying on Capitol Hill, I've literally been told by people, we're overpaid, and oh, aren't you all just uh, a bunch of volunteers? There's No one thinks about us longer than uh, half a sentence. Uh, to confuse that point, um, so, uh, well, I got myself worked up and I forgot where I was going. Well, I think, you know, um, when talking about endowments, so I don't think Gen Xers and millennials are going to be setting up endowments in the same way previous generations did. And I think that uh, other than community foundations, endowments aren't going to be what they used to be. So the people who haven't already set up endowments they're going to have a hard time surviving in the future with small donations through crowdfunding because that's what you're going to end up with uh, if you don't have the government grants and you don't have the the um, tax uh, breaks that you used to have. There, there are a couple of other things. There's the crowdfunding. There's just putting money into an entity without regard to the tax status, the Zuckerberg Chen approach. Right. It's gotten a lot of, a lot of press. Uh, but there's another issue uh, item, which is the donor-advised funds. That's a place where you can put money, usually run through community foundations or large investment houses like Fidelity and Vanguard. It is the, I don't want to say poor man's uh, endowment, but it's uh, for people of less grandiose means where you can put in five or ten or $25,000, and those would be hefty contributions. You put them into the community foundation, and then you direct where that money goes. Right. Uh, with the tax law, it lacks, my view is it'll accelerate the use of donor-advised funds. So let's say you save up $5,000 uh, for five years, and then you make a $25,000 donation into your community foundation. That's good for the community foundation. It's good for the community. Uh, that's uh, and because of the standard deduction doubling, uh, a couple has a standard deduction of twenty four thousand uh, dollars. So you get up over the twenty four thousand, so you can start making your deduction again. So people uh, could be alternating their years of charitable donations, and then putting them in a, in a block into uh, donor advised funds. Undecided yet, or undetermined yet, as to whether that's the right way to go. Donor advised funds have been growing exponentially in recent years. The good news is that there's money going in, being dedicated to the public good. The complaints by some are that there's no payout, there's no guarantee that you, know, you get the tax break immediately, and you don't know when the money is actually going to be paid out. Most of the data show that the money is going is being paid out at a rate faster than private foundations. But still, there's the concern that people could park money, get the tax deduction now, and then never quite get around to paying it out. So it's something it, that's a challenge. But the fact that everything is going uh, towards community foundations and away from private endowments 
for, for individual organizations. I think that's a trend, um, and I think that's a, a big trend to watch. So, like, if you have a small community hospital or a small community cultural center, for example, you um, you may have an endowment. And you're much more likely to survive in the next 20 years, 30 years, 40 years with an endowment attached to you than if you're the same organization without an endowment where you're having to write grants to the community foundation to survive as opposed to having that kind of backup funds available to you through your own endowment. Well, let's, let's back up. I'm, I'm agreeing with you, but let's back up. The vast majority of charitable nonprofits don't have endowments. I haven't looked at the nonprofit finance fund data from two years ago or three years ago, but well, let's be honest. The the vast majority of nonprofits uh, are are not doing very well. I mean, eighty percent of our sector, uh, I should say, eighty percent of our funding goes to twenty percent of the sector, which in my mind means that eighty percent are small organizations under a million dollars that are not doing necessarily well. Well, the great news is that that's a lot of nonprofits that have a spark, have an innovation, so they're, by golly, coming to work every day to try to solve some problem. That, that's the exciting part, but you're right. 80%, I believe, is the number is left. I have revenues of less than a million dollars. That's And correct. there's a high number, whether it's 50% or not, have cash flow of less than 30 days. And it's a, it's a large percentage of um, cash flow of less than than three months. So we're absolutely undercapitalized. Endowment's not so much the question as keeping keeping making payroll. So, um, so most most aren't dreaming of endowments. They're dreaming of the, just a steady steady cushion uh, to keep their keep themselves operating right but in, an endowment is a steady cushion for somebody who can get one and for you know I mean I, I do this podcast for that 80 percent to try to help them figure out you know why they're they're not uh, why they're not growing and how to to make them grow but um, for those people and, who and your 80 percent you you the 80 percent uh, listening are exactly who we, the National Council of Nonprofits, work with through state associations because you have a powerful voice. What you're, you're doing frontline work that blows politicians away. They're intimidated by frontline nonprofits who are struggling and still committed to their missions. So your 80% are the people who have the most, uh, I'd say, the most influence and the best stories to tell to politicians and newspapers and funders. But in the in the eighties and nineties, I think uh, organizations would grow by you know five to ten percent every year, and sh- uh, funding would shrink by three to five percent every year, and that was kind of a trend through the eighties and nineties. So you would have more and more organizations for less and less funds, and I think um, a lot of organizations would kind of hang on because of committed founders and small groups, and I think in the future it's going to be harder for those organizations to hang on. They're just going to, to fold and uh, you'll see less organizations, but the ones that succeed are going to be those ones that have been able to capitalize on getting an endowment before the baby boomers are gone. I, well, I hope what you say is true. I found that a lot of the ones that hang on are the ones with the charismatic leader that gets the attention of funders. The bottom line is that all fundraising is relationships and getting to know the people who have the donor advised funds, who have the um, connections and the ability to spread the good word about what you're doing. Uh, 
is is critical. Absolutely, and and uh, you know. Uh, a lot of organizations do have that charismatic founder. And then what happens when that charismatic founder is gone, you know? Um, so I, we have to make things stronger. Yeah. A fad in the philanthropic world is mergers and acquisitions. So we found that a lot of nonprofits are getting money to hire consultants to talk about merging with other groups. Might and that's smart. In, uh, it might make sense in some areas, but, uh, To the question, are there too many nonprofits? I'd say, are there too many Starbucks? Nothing against Starbucks, other than saying, (laughs) depends on where you are. I think the data are that there's one nonprofit for every half block in the urban areas, and one nonprofit, one nonprofit for every half mile in the urban area, and one nonprofit for every 50 miles in a rural area. So, if you're rural, uh, you're not. You're not over. You're not overly blessed with nonprofits helping you out. So it it all depends on where you are and what services you're getting done. Yeah, that seems to be a little different by state. You know, you know, Hawaii and the North Pacific Northwest seem to have more nonprofits in rural areas than other states do. But um, I think I think mergers and acquisitions are great for nonprofits. Uh, funders certainly like them, and I think they can be really good because a lot of times you'll have. Uh, a nonprofit that's guided by ego more than community help where, you know, you have a founder who doesn't really like the people down the road. So they want to start their own thing, doing the same thing. And it's great when those people can eventually get together and, and work as one for the community. Depends on the, depends on the services. Depends on the yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. It, yeah, uh, exactly. It's all goes different. both ways. And, um, my goal is as many people, uh, pulling a laboring ore in alignment so that the work's getting done, whether it's three groups or one. A challenge, another challenge is that everyone wants collaboration, but funders tend not to reward the collaborators. They reward the one that, that gets the most press or, the, uh, or has the, uh, the uh, charismatic leader who takes credit for everyone else's work. So it goes both ways. Well, don't get me started on things that funders do. I mean, funders often say they want planning, and then they reward the people who don't plan. So <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of things funders do that doesn't make sense. Perhaps that's a topic of another that's, uh, yeah, podcast that's, arc. Okay. Well, I'm I'm actually going to be speaking with some funders about these issues on another podcast. But I really appreciate what you're doing, lobbying for us. Uh, you're kind of like fishing in the desert there in D.C. a little bit, you know, when you're talking about uh, helping us out. Because, uh, like you say, we're people have a lot of. Uh, I should say, politicians have a lot of strange ideas about what it is we do, and uh, you know, they think we're all volunteers and. And, uh, you know, it even gets worse by sector. You know, I worked in the arts for many years, and you can drill down and see even worse uh, suppositions about what it is we do when you get to things like the arts. But I really uh, love what you're doing, and I want to thank you personally for doing it. Thank you for your service. <laughs> well, well, thank you for your podcast. Zook, can I quiz you on two items? Absolutely. Can we have a moment? How many laws do you think Congress passed last year? Oh man! So the last year of Obama, or or the nope, the first year of Trump? I would say not a whole lot got done, um, but but I would be wrong because there was a, probably a lot of little laws that got passed that didn't require the Democrats to work with the Republicans. So, mm-hmm. um, 
Jeez, I uh, I'm going to say 300. Wow. That's how many that Congress enacted in the entire prior Congress, the 114th Congress. They enacted 97 laws last year. Now, the fun question. How many laws did the states enact last year? Oh, probably all of them together? Yep. Oh, probably 100 times that. Uh, let's see, do the math. 17,000, so whatever. Yeah. Uh, 170 times. Uh, 17,000 laws. I say this because the act, most of the people, when people talk about nonprofits and advocacy, they talk about Washington. Washington. How about your state legislatures that are enacting good and bad, mostly bad laws every day? 17,000. Oh, you know, now you're touching on a nerve for me. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little story that you might be able to use as a lobbyist. So, okay. So I, I was a, an artist. Can your listeners listen in too? Yeah, sure. I, I was an artist for, for 12 years before I got into administration. And when I was an artist, I didn't vote because I was very disillusioned with the two-party system. I've, I've been a decline to state my entire life. I always vote in the middle. I often vote for both uh, people of different parties on the same election. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a proud centrist. I'm, I'm a proud fence sitter. And I, I've been very disillusioned with our elections for a long time. And I didn't vote as a, as a young adult until they were cutting the arts in my city. And uh, I got involved in advocacy for the first time in the 90s in Pasadena, California, when they were talking about cutting out the entire arts budget. And uh, I saw how much advocacy on the local level works. And I realized that I shouldn't be voting for the president or the vice president or the senator for the state so much as I should be voting because it's important that I elect my local officials and my local representatives and work in local politics. And that's when I really got energized to sign up to vote and start voting in every election and do more advocacy. And I think uh, a lot of people don't realize that. We get so hung up on the national politics, we forget how much we're impacted by our local politics. I believe the, uh, the quote is, all politics is local. Yep. You, you, lived, the, you lived the quote. Way to go. Yeah, I mean, it, it had a huge impact, and we were able to save every dollar of that funding by coming together as a community and doing advocacy when that threat was on. And I just realized that we shouldn't wait for a threat. We need to do that all the time. There's a wonderful quote from an old Alabama lobbyist I heard. It's my accent close enough, so I'm going to use it. David, you never want to have to ask a stranger for a favor, so get on up there and meet him now before you need something. <laughs> Translated into your own accent, and the whole point is talking with the newspaper reporter before there's some scandal in your town, talking to the politician or the, the funder or the civic group before there's a dire need. You know the community needs to come together. You know that there needs to be a strong voice uh, for the nonprofit community, so now's good time as any to start using it. Well, and as you said, that's the secret to fundraising, too, is developing those relationships. So, uh, you know, we, like you said, we're doing advocacy all the time in our communities. We don't always realize it, and we don't always see that we can be affecting change on a local level. So, again, I really love what you do. Could you want to give your website one more time? I do. Uh, council, C-O-U-N-C-I-L, of nonprofits.org. There you can find all that uh, news you want 
a link to our newsletters to subscribe. They're free. And find your state association of nonprofits. Well, David, it's been a pleasure to talk with you, and I really appreciate you taking out the time, carving an hour out of your schedule, working with the uh, politicians there in, in Washington to talk to little old me. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, thank you, and thank you for your listeners for the work they're doing. You know, uh, I think Jay Leno said it, said it best that politics comes from the Greek root of poly meaning many and ticks meaning bloodsuckers. <laughs> Thank you for listening to 501c3BS, deprogramming for organizational growth. I'm your host, Zoo Velasco. 501c3BS is sponsored by the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton and the Mahalo School of Business. Join us at the Summer School for Nonprofits for one amazing week every August. Gianneschi is spelled G-I-A-N-N-E-S-C-H-I. That's G-I-A-N-N-E-S-C-H-I, Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton and the Mahalo School of Business. Check out my Twitter feed at 501c3bs, my webpage at zootvelasco.com, and my book, The First 100 Days, on Amazon. The music is provided to us from our good friends at the traditional Brazilian choral group, Grupo Falso Baiano and Amy Molinelli. Find them at grupofalsobaiano.com. Thank you for listening. Have a great day free from BS.